Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Muse, the brain-sensing headband and five-star app meditation studio. I'm Patricia Carpus, your host along with my co-host, Muse co-founder, Ariel Garten. Wherever you are, we hope you're taking good care of yourself and getting lots of virtual hugs from those you love. For more comfort this month, check out the free SOS Calm collection of meditations on Muse or Meditation Studio. All you need to do is download those apps to check them out. If you and your family want to learn to meditate while you're sheltering at home or deepen your practice, use the discount code MUSESTRESSLESS for your Muse headband. Now might be a really good time to check that out. We're thinking of all of you and wishing you the very best. Now on to today's Encore episode. Today's guest is Frank Ostaseski, author of the book, The Five Invitations, What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. He's also the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project and a beloved Buddhist teacher. He's the leading voice in the end-of-life movement and is one extraordinary man. The Five Invitations is about how we can show up and be more fully present and engaged in every moment. It's not always easy, especially when we're all challenged at some point with death and loss and all the things that take us to our edges. But he shares how we can focus more on what matters most. What he's learned is that when we get to the end of our lives, the two most important and most often asked questions are, did I love well and am I loved? He reminds us how we can live rich lives, inviting in all of our feelings and emotions, pushing away nothing, and that there is some beauty in both joy and sorrow. Now, here's Frank. Frank, it is so great and such an honor to have you on Untangle today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm delighted to be with you and your listeners as well. I want to start by asking you the question, why did you choose to get into work with the death and dying? And how did you choose to start the Zen Hospice? People's lives don't always follow a linear path. Mine certainly didn't. I'd say walking in another direction, I arrived at this door. My own childhood was wrought with difficulty. My parents were alcoholic. There was terrible things that happened in my teenage years. And so I was really trying to avoid suffering. At some juncture, that doesn't work. You have to turn toward your own suffering and see what it has to teach you about compassion. And so initially, my work with people who were disabled or coming facing life-threatening illness was really actually about trying to avoid my own pain. I thought if I was with their pain, mine might not seem too bad. Mm. And I think actually, if we're honest, that's a motivation for an awful lot of people working in healthcare. At some juncture, as I say, though, that, that turns and you understand that this is really the, where the ground of compassion is, is to be found by going toward the suffering instead of trying to run away from it. When you say you were trying to avoid suffering, a lot of us that grow up with difficulties in our families push down our feelings. Is that what you mean by avoiding suffering by not feeling? And is that what you're inviting us to do, is to feel all of what we are feeling? Sure, sure. I mean, I think a lot of us, particularly those of us that have suffered some kind of emotional or mental difficulties, can dissociate. We can have little or no contact with our bodies or emotional life. That was so for me in my early years. And so I think there's a kind of healing that comes from making more contact with the body and accessing the rich dimensions of our emotional life. At first, it's a bit frightening, actually, for most people. Yes. But I think as we get more adept in uh, working with it, and we can hopefully get some help along the way, 
I think then we find that our lives are much broader, much deeper, and we have more resilience, actually, to face the world than we do when we're busy trying to avoid it. Yeah, I think it might be overwhelming sometimes when you start accepting and acknowledging your feelings if you have spent your whole life avoiding them. So I think it's really nice to have some of the practices that you talk about in the book to sort of help along the way. You say that death gives us the opportunity to see beyond the ordinary, that it is so transformative in that it takes us into these deep dimensions that you're talking about of what it means to be human. Can you talk a little bit more about that and your experience of how it's been so transformative to work with death? We could say that both at birth and at death, the veils, if we will, between this world and what we might call the invisible world get really thin. And there, oftentimes, we get a glimpse, we could say, of something that's larger than ourself that also includes ourself. We might feel the same thing when we take a walk in nature, for example, or we're sitting at the seashore looking at the vast ocean. We get a sense of perspective, first of all. And I think that helps us enormously in dealing with our day-to-day experience. Death shows us what's really important. Very few people have I been with at the time of their dying, and I've been with a few thousand people, have ever said to me, gee, I wish I'd gotten a second Mercedes. What really is important to them at the end of their lives are really two questions. First is, am I loved? And the second is, did I love well? Yeah. And everything else sort of falls behind those two questions. And of course, for me, if those two questions are important at the time of our dying, well, it seems to me they're important to us now. And we ought not wait until the time of our dying to live into them, to you know, mm. practice with those questions. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I was going to ask you what the most common sort of last day feeling you've seen and heard. And it sounds like those are the two questions that people ask themselves, am I loved and did I love well? Oftentimes, yeah. Yeah. And do you find that people feel like their lives have been fulfilled or do you feel like there are a lot of questions that people have right before they die? Of course, it's difficult to generalize about the process of dying. It's each unique, a bit like each birth. What seems to be true is that both birth and death, let's go back to birth, allows us to move beyond what we thought was possible. And we do things we couldn't have imagined. It's like in birth, many women I know have labored through very powerful, strong contractions of childbirth, exhaustion, pain, only to discover this deep upwelling of love in them, unlike any love they've known before. I've seen the same thing, the same heartfelt kind of shifts occur in people as they die and also in the lives of their caregivers as well. They Mm -hmm. discover love that's reliable, that's resilient, that they have trust in. And that happens quite often at the time of dying. Now. Equally so, people sometimes turn toward the wall in withdrawal and hopelessness and depression, and they never come back again. Both of those things are true and everything in between, of course. What I can say to you is that all of those people, the ones who turned toward the wall and the ones who blossomed, they've all been my teachers. They've shown me a lot, not only about the process of dying, but how to live a rich and full and meaningful life. You talk about this in the book, and and it just sounds so beautiful. You hold space for people that are dying every day, and then you go home. And how do you sort of hold the space for people that are dying and also keep a hopeful, positive, somewhat happy perspective when you go home in the evening? Yeah, good question. Really great question. I mean, I often work with clinicians who are working in hospice or palliative care. 
And I say to them, tongue in cheek, you people are not normal. It's not mm-hmm. normal to be with people who are dying day in and day out. And so the normal coping strategies, having a glass of wine and watching a television show, aren't going to be sufficient for you to integrate, to metabolize the suffering that you've been bearing witness to during the course of your day. So you need other coping strategies. So for me, for example, I use three. The first was I went to my meditation cushion. That was a way to stabilize the calm body, heart, and mind Mm -hmm. and to gradually integrate. But that wasn't enough, actually. At one juncture, I was working in the middle of the AIDS epidemic, and we would lose 20, 30, 40 people in a week. And the grief was enormous. And so I would go to a body worker. He's a great guy. And I'd come in and he'd say, where today, Frank? And I'd point to my shoulder and he'd just put his hand on my shoulder and I'd lay down on this table and I would cry for an hour. And I'd get up from the table and I'd say, I'll see you next week. And there was something about the relational aspect and the physical touch, because grief, I think, is often a physical experience, that really helped me to not only express those strong feelings, but also metabolize them. And then the third thing I did was I went to the hospital, the local hospital here, and I knew the nurses on the maternity ward. And so I would go to the maternity ward, and there would be babies there who were born to addicted mothers, fetal alcohol syndrome, mothers who were addicted to crack, et cetera. And these babies would be really shaken. Mm. And so I would hold these babies in my arms, and I would rock them for about a half an hour. And there was something about soothing their suffering, which I could almost always do. And I couldn't always do it in the people that were dying, honestly. I couldn't always Mm. soothe their suffering. And Mm. so something about that that enabled me to then go back into the trenches, so to speak, and work with people whose suffering I couldn't necessarily take away. And I would do that before I would go home to my own four teenagers. Those were really good balancing practices for me. So I think we're doing this work, whether it's with our own family members or friends or with the clinician, it's important that we find coping strategies that really suit and are appropriate to the kind of work that we're doing day in and day out. Yeah, that's such a beautiful thing that you were able to find those strategies to help yourself sort of feel better and transition into your home life, because I'm sure you carry a lot of the emotions with you wherever you go. Your book is called The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. And I devoured these five invitations. And I just, I think they're so perfect for how we live our lives. And I I wanted to go through each one of them and talk a little bit about them. So the first one is don't wait. And I think you talk there about embracing the truth that all things must end. And that in and of itself encourages us not to wait for things to be perfect and to begin sort of living in a manner where we are more deeply engaged. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why that's so important for us? First of all, if we wait to be perfect, we could wait a long time. Well, yeah, perfect. (laughs) Things things won't get done, you know? So we have to bring our imperfect self forward. At least that's what I've learned to do. Waiting is also full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment, we miss this one. I can't tell you how many times, Patricia, I've been with a family who've said to me, in effect, when is mom going to die? And waiting for that moment of dying, we missed all the moments in between. Waiting is not just patience. Even patience has a quality of expectation to it. This don't wait is really a matter of engaging life moment to moment, really fully engaging it. I think it's a pathway to fulfillment and an antidote to regret, actually. A lot of us think death will come later. Right. But impermanence is not later. Constant change is not later. It's here now. And where is your childhood? Where is this morning's breakfast? Where is last night's lovemaking? It's all come and go. We understand this. You know, we really get it that everything changes. 
But somehow what's really peculiar to me is that even though we know this, right, we avoid this truth. It's a fascinating paradox to me. How can we know something so clearly on one hand and yet live our life as if we didn't know it at all? Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you talk about how we attach happiness to a specific outcome. And most of us live this way and that's what causes suffering. And I kind of like what you said about this concept of mature hope, which is Mm. a clear intention and a simultaneous letting go. And maybe that is something that helps us realize that things do change and we have to let go of each moment. It's really hard, but it's also kind of, playful to me. It's a little silly to me that we all agree, right, that everything comes and goes, seasons come and go, relationships come and go. All that's true. Everything is changing except me, right? I'm the one solid thing in an ever-changing universe, right? And it's peculiar to me that we can think that way, but we can. Mm -hmm. Look, impermanence isn't the problem. We cling to things, even though we know rationally that the problem is not change. The problem is our clinging. The problem is the way in which we get fixated on something and attached to a particular outcome, as you said a moment ago. Hope, are in the conventional way that we think about it, is kind of the flip side of fear. They're both based on an expectation of what the future is going to deliver. And um, one may feel more positive than the other, but they're both, in a way, traps. They trap us into a certain set of expectations that may or may not come, and then we think our happiness is determined on things turning out the way we want them to turn out. And of course, as now that we're adults, we realize it doesn't work that way, right? Do you think that at the end of life, we have, what do we do with regrets? And actually, during life, if we're willing to accept the idea that everything comes and goes, does that help us with things that we might regret from the past? We're a different person, actually, in every moment, right? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the beauty of recognizing the truth of impermanence, of constant change, is that actually... We're always in the midst of some kind of shift. And so that means we don't have to be crippled and wedded to our past in the same way. We're not stuck in our previous identifications, previous stories of ourselves. So that's helpful, I think, in some regard. Yeah. What do Um, you say to people who are sort of feeling overwhelmed with regrets when they're at the end of life? Well, it's a good question. And of course, there's a lot been written about this. Bonnie Ware wrote a beautiful book called The Five Regrets. And I think this is wonderful. Of course, I'm always more interested in the other question, which is what are the transformations that people go through at the end of their life? Mm. Sometimes when we talk about regrets, we're trying to do an end run around them. We're trying to know what they are so we don't have them. There's a difference between regret and remorse. And I think it's a subtle but important one. Remorse is a feeling of sadness based on my actions or maybe on something that happened to me. And I want to feel that sadness because it actually helps me to not take that action again or to learn something from that experience. Regret is a kind of self-criticism. It's a kind of beating ourselves up when we're already down on the ground. At a time when we most need our mercy, we club ourselves with self-judgment oftentimes. So I don't think it's just semantical. I think it's really important to look and see when I say something cruel to my wife, I really want to feel the effect of that because then I don't want to do it again. And so I think once we touch the suffering in our lives or the suffering in the lives of others, our innate compassion starts to show up and we don't want to hurt anymore. We don't want to hurt others. We don't want to hurt ourselves. When someone has a lot of regrets, one of the things I try and do is inquire with them about what was learned from the experience. And it's not just to put a positive spin on it. It's really to see there's a value in our mistakes. But a few of us grow in our comfort zones, right? We always grow in the places where we're 
and we're making mistakes and we're not so comfortable. Well, and I'm sure it also is really helpful for people that you are such a good listener to have somebody that's willing to sit with you and hear your story, whether it's regrets or remorse. It's just so wonderful because many people don't know how to really listen well. So I think that's such a beautiful gift that you're giving. Yeah. And I think we're all capable of it, honestly. Yeah. It's just that often, I mean, listening is like the shortest distance between two people, right? But oftentimes what's happening is we're not actually listening. We're forming our response to the next question or to the, what was just said. We're not actually listening. But I think when we listen in a, what I might call a devout way or a very committed way, I think what happens actually is that draws out the truth from the other person. They know that they can trust you because you're being a compassionate companion in that moment. And then they're willing to go to places that seem dark or dangerous to them simply because they're accompanied by someone who isn't sitting in judgment of them. Yeah, I love the way you just said that, like compassionate companion, one that's trusted, because I think that does make all the difference. And I love that we can also all learn to do that. Yeah, I think we can. I think we can. So your second of the five invitations is welcome everything, push away nothing. And you talk about how we can't really be free if we're rejecting any part of ourselves and that we need to recognize everything just as it is. And I am wondering what are the practices we need to do to really welcome everything into our lives? Because again, I think that's hard and it does push people way out of their comfort zones. I agree. And I just want to say that all of these five invitations are really, they were taught to me by people who were dying. In other words, there's something I, I really began to understand when people were doing the hard work of reviewing their lives and seeing what really matters. So they're not easy, but they are valuable. And to welcome everything, I mean, is that even smart? We ask that question, right? Here's the thing. It doesn't mean we have to like it or that we have to agree with it. It's not our job really to approve or disapprove. The word welcome sort of confronts us. It causes us to suspend our judgment temporarily, right? And so what this welcoming means is it's at our front door. Are we willing to meet it? The great African-American writer, James Baldwin, he said something beautiful. He said, there are so many things in this life that we must face that we cannot change, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And I think that's really the heart of this welcome everything, push away nothing. It's a willingness to meet it, to see what it has to teach you. And I don't think we can do this as an act of will, a sort of pushing through the experience. I think it's an act of love, actually. I mean, when you think about love, you think about your partner or your people in your life that you really care about. I mean, some part of you says they're not even my type, right? I mean, maybe they don't look the way you want them to look or some such thing, but you love them, right? And that's the beautiful thing about love is that it, it's not a gated community. Everything and every part of you is welcomed. Yeah? Whatever love comes into contact with, it just loves. It doesn't pick and choose or ask you if you're from the right country or if you have the proper health insurance or did you go to the right school. It just loves. And I think that's really the heart of this particular invitation. It's an act of love to welcome. So you also talk about making peace with the way things are instead of forcing them to be the way we want them to be or judging them. How do we know when to do something and when to do nothing? Because sometimes we're welcoming our emotions and then sometimes we welcome our emotions and there's something we need to do, some empowered action that we need to take. With those emotions, you know, I want people to understand that it's really not just sitting with everything, but sometimes there's some kind of a distinction. Yeah. 
So one way we could think about this is that welcoming is the first step. It's what allows us to actually greet what's at our door. Now, you can't change something that you haven't been open to. So that's the first step. Welcome it. Here it is. It's at my door. What's it got to show me? Now, then I can develop a skillful response. Then I can decide, well, what's appropriate here and what's not in my life that I would welcome onto my front porch, but I don't let them into my house. That's just smart, right? Right. So I think there we have to use our intelligence and our required skills to sort of determine what's correct action here. I think that's an action that comes out of first seeing as much of the situation as we possibly can see and then deciding what to do. Oftentimes, our actions are kind of knee-jerk, right? They, we have an emotion and we think there's only two things to do, either suppress it or express it. And I think there's a third option, and that's to contain the emotion. And that doesn't mean to repress it at all. It's, it means to hold it, like you're holding something precious, actually, and see what it has to show you. And then after that, then we can, again, we can take skillful action. We can say no, for example. No is a perfectly compassionate thing to say. So I think recognizing that we have that third option to contain, to hold, is in itself valuable. And you had this term, which I really liked, about undigested bits of pain that we carry in our body. Do you believe that those undigested bits of pain are because we have spent more time repressing our emotions? Well, of course, there's lots of views around this. What seems true to me is that suffering is exacerbated by avoidance. It doesn't go away because we wish it away. It doesn't go away by burying our head in the sand. Our pain has to be included, integrated, metabolized, as we've been saying. And that comes from coming to know it intimately and finding out maybe we haven't had a skillful response to that particular kind of pain in the past. And now we're learning a new one. Yeah. So I think, yes, for a lot of people, I think undigested, I mean, a good example of this is grief, the sadness right. that is, or the range of emotional experiences that are part of the uh, grief experience. When they're not really felt, when they're not really known, they can easily become depression or withdrawal or other kinds of not so positive states of mind and body and heart. So true. I had this question. How do we not see everyday or even milestone suffering as personal? Because I think a lot of people tend to take the things that happen to them very personally. Do you find that there are some ways to not take things personally? I think as you suggest, it's a common phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. We take everything personally <laughs> because right. it's part of our narcissistic view. It's a way of right. right. everything right. about us in some way. We didn't invent greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are the three things the Buddha talked about. He called them poisons. They're, it's a very strong right. word. But yeah. in other words, these are part of the human condition. We didn't invent them, but we're responsible to meet them in our life. And so knowing when a particular obstacle, let's call it, like the demand that things be different, knowing when that's present is really essential. Because otherwise, if we don't know that we're looking through that lens, we will imagine somehow that we're seeing the situation clearly. And when we understand that we're looking through the lens of the demand that things be different, then we realize it's distorting our view. And if we pull back, we take a backward step, as we say in Zen, then we can see, oh, that's what's happening here. There is already this difficulty in life, but I'm making it worse by demanding it be different. So I think getting some perspective is incredibly helpful. And no, it's not all personal. I mean, I wish I could say it was, then I could deal with it all. But there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the world that I have nothing to do with directly. Right. I'm at the effect. So the third of the five invitations is bringing your whole self to the experience. And this is where you talk about bringing a perspective that isn't about fixing something 
and distorting things, but actually maybe resourcing courage. Tell us a little bit about this, like how you bring our whole self to each experience in life. Many of us are busy trying to be perfect, as we spoke about earlier. And we've got an idea about what that looks like, right? That somehow it comes from this idea of deficiency, that we're not enough, not smart enough, not thin enough, not rich enough, whatever the not enough is, right? And so there's already that predisposition, we could say, in us oftentimes. We also think that what will always solve the problem is more skills, more intelligence, more strength. But what I found, and I, my work with folks who were dying, and, and I worked with a lot of folks who lived on the streets of San Francisco, and what I found in those encounters was that often it was my fear that created a meeting place with them. It was my helplessness that actually helped me in the situation because I could build an empathetic bridge from those experiences to the experience of the person I was sitting with. And so we're so busy trying to get rid of certain experiences, our grief, our fear, our lust, whatever it is. And I think when we do that, we don't learn much about the experience. And so we're always at the, they've always kind of got us in a stranglehold. And so I think that what I'm encouraging here is get to know these emotional mental states that slap us around so much, push us around so much, so that we're not a victim to them. Here's an example. Here's a story. I was taking care of a dear friend of mine many years ago now during the AIDS epidemic, and he was a wonderful guy. But this one morning when I went to his house to work with him, he had developed this strange neurological phenomenon. And in one day, he lost his ability to stand, to hold a book, or to speak an intelligent word. That all happened in one, one morning. And it was my morning to take care of him. And so we went through the day, and it was a difficult day. And um, afternoon rolled into the evening, and the evening into the early hours of the morning. And it was a lot of work to take care of him. He had uh, these anal fistulas, like tumors and constant diarrhea. And it was a lot of work to move him to the toilet, to the bath, back and forth dozens of times. And in one of these moves at three o'clock in the morning, I was so tired. I just wanted him to go to sleep and to somehow wake up in the morning and have this nightmare be over. And I was washing my hands at the bathroom sink. And I looked in the vanity mirror. And there was my friend sitting on the toilet. And he started to whisper to me. He hadn't spoken all day. And he whispered to me. And he said, you're trying too hard. And I was. I was trying much too hard to be somebody special. Me, Mr. Hospice. And I sat down right next to him, and I just began to weep, and I just cried. That was the most intimate moment of our whole friendship. Because up until then, I was afraid to go into that territory, that territory of helplessness. I was afraid that if I went in there, we'd both get lost, and we would drown. And so what I realized was that didn't happen. There we were now together in this helplessness. The situation showed us what to do next, and we could do it. But I wouldn't have known that until I was able to be in that space. And then letting myself be in that space of helplessness gave me a much deeper understanding to what was happening for him. And I could be a much better caregiver to him when I understood that. Your other option would have been to get really, yeah, I mean, you did get somewhat overwhelmed. My next question was, what happens when our emotional reactivity is out of proportion to a given experience or stimulus, which yours wasn't, you felt it exactly as he was expressing it. But in some cases in life, maybe we have unresolved feelings that are getting triggered and they're erupting with intensity that we're not prepared for and we get overwhelmed. You know, what do we do? One thing that we need to look at, of course, is, first of all, many of us are responding in a way that 
when we feel a strong emotional response, it probably doesn't have that much to do with the situation that's in front of us. It could be triggered right. by that situation, but there's yeah. some old unresolved or unexplored or even unknown emotional reaction that's getting played out here. So what's best to do in a situation like that is stop, literally stop. Whatever you're in the middle of, stop, pause, take some breaths, ground yourself in the body, and then begin to inquire a little bit. What's this? What's actually going on here? And not just believe our story. Well, I'm having this reaction because she said or he said this or that. So to inquire a little bit into the situation and really to use our good intelligence to see, is what's happening here just about what's happening here? Or is it being fed by something else? What psychologists would call object relations, some reminder from some previous event to our relationship. Yeah, Kind of an echo of that. Yeah, I like what you're saying. I think you always gain from pausing and then inquiring versus reacting from the first thing that comes into your mind. Sometimes grief is about what you say this in the book, actually. Sometimes grief is about what we've had and lost, and sometimes it's about what we never had in the first place. And I think many of us feel that second way. What didn't we get that we thought we'd have? And how do we change our relationship with this type of grief, which is very intangible. Sure. Well, I can think of a situation where I was with a young man and he said, I'm not feeling any grief about the death of my father, but we were never that close anyway. Mm -hmm. And when we began to explore, he began to understand just what you're pointing us to, which is that, oh, the real grief for him was that he never had a relationship with his dad. And so that was part of the challenge, to allow him to really feel that, to feel the absence actually, of his father, as opposed to this deep presence of his father's love that then went away, he never really got it. And Mm. so it was really a challenge to work with him. And we worked over several months on this very issue. And of course, really what healed him in the end was recognizing his capacity to love himself in a way that he'd always wanted to get from someone else, in this case, his father, but that he was perfectly capable of giving himself that love. And ultimately, that's what contributed to his healing. Oh, and so that deep grief changes over time and it softens because he was, he was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It changes not just because of time. There's a cliche about that, that time heals. I think it's a half truth. I think time and attention heal. Is that what you call loosening the period? Yeah. yeah. We we, we talked about it in the book. We said that there were, I'm suspicious of any maps, including my own, about the grief process because it's so unpredictable. But we Mm -hmm. talk about loss, the shock of loss. Losing, which is, means that when someone dies, you don't just lose them once, you lose them many times. You know? yeah. But your wife, and you get into bed at night, and then the sheets are cold, you lose her again. Yeah. And then there's some later stage, which we call loosening. That's when the stranglehold of grief sort of lets go a little bit. and You can re-engage in life and carry that person with you in your heart, so to speak, wherever you go. But first, the other being willing to meet all the other faces of grief are essential. And I think yeah. in this culture, we have a lot of fear about that. And so we rush people through their grief or we pathologize their grief. And instead of recognizing that we need to make room for everything in grief, from numbness to the most wild expressions of grief. Yeah, it's so true that we rush people through grief. And the fourth invitation is to find a place of rest in the middle of it all. And I wanted to talk about how do we do that? And how do we sort of find the courage to step back and find that place of rest? Yeah. Boy, we're addicted to busy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> we just keep going. And we come up with these terms like multitasking and such, which 
of course, are kind of illusions. One of the things I, I talked to some doctors about this, and I asked them, they were all tired. They came to a program with me, and they were all tired. And I said to them, what's right about being exhausted? And of course, they all said, nothing is right about being exhausted. I said, look a little closer. And then they began to really examine, and they started to say things like, oh, when I'm exhausted, people think I'm working really hard. Uh, when I'm exhausted, people think I'm really dedicated. Uh, when I'm exhausted, I think I'm a committed clinician. So I think that sometimes we get addicted, if you will, to busy. We get addicted to our doing, and we forget the need to just be still or to rest. Now, when we're taking care of someone who's dying, we can't necessarily go on a vacation. We think rest will come later when we, our list gets checked off or when we go on a holiday or when all the chores are done. But my list is never checked off. So we have to find a way of resting right in the middle of what we're involved in. And I think that comes from bringing our attention fully and completely to whatever it is we're engaged in. You know how it is when you read a book or you go to a film and you just kind of leave yourself there for a little bit and you, just, and you come away feeling refreshed. The same is true in meditation. We give our attention fully and completely to whatever it is that's emerging. And it isn't the thing that's emerging that rests us. It's the quality of our attention that rests us. So to find a place of rest is that, is to bring a way of attending carefully to what's occurring as it's occurring, instead of complicating our life with always trying to second-guess the next thing and spending all this moment preparing for the next moment. Yeah. Athletes do that, right? There's always a period of rest and recovery, and we tend just not to think that way in our daily lives. So I think that is really, really good advice. And then your fifth invitation is about cultivate what we call a don't know mind, which you talk about as sort of inspiring curiosity, surprise, and wonder. So will you share a little bit about that? First, we should clarify that don't know mind, not knowing was another mm -hmm. way to say that. Yep. Not ignorance. Ignorance is when we know something, but it's the wrong thing, and then we insist on it. There's a lot of that going on in the culture today. So not knowing is something different. Not knowing is open. It's reflective. It's, as you say, wonder, curious. The quality of a really clear mind is, we might think of it as spacious or open, infused with a deep interest to know. Yeah. So if our mind is full of all our knowing, there's not much room for anything else to enter. So cultivating a don't-know mind is to develop a mind that's alive, that's fresh, that wants to discover. It's an invitation to look with fresh eyes and to um, open our hearts in a grateful way. When I walk into a room where someone is dying, I don't know how to take care of them. I mean, of course, I have all my tools and things that I've acquired over the years. But I find uh, if I put down that toolbox of tools that I have between myself and the patient, one of us is sure to trip over it. So I don't lead with my tools. I have them. I lead with my humanity. I lead with my curiosity, my sense of wonder. And then if I need a tool, well, okay, great. Then I can pull it out of my toolbox and use it in a skillful way. And I think that that's a refreshing way to conduct a relationship between so-called caregiver and person being cared for. This way that I'm describing invites a more a relationship amongst equals. And it recognizes that the person who's sick in this case, or the person who's troubled, if it's your friend who's telling you about their breakup, has a lot to contribute to their own healing. If we're insisting on our way, when I started to teach, a friend of mine who was a teacher, he gave me a really wonderful mantra. He said, Frank, before you teach, always say this mantra to yourself. And I thought, okay, it's going to be something esoteric. And the mantra was, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. <laughs> yeah? And it's a very humbling, wonderful mantra. 
whether that's in teaching or in conducting our relationships. I just might be wrong. Am I open yeah. to learning here? Am I open to discovering here? So that's the first sort of baby steps of don't know mine. I think we can, it, it can go incredibly deep, this understanding. Right. Yeah, I love that's that. That's the first step, yeah. Yeah, I don't think we can assume that we know everything and also talk a lot on this podcast about having a growth mindset. And I think that is similar to having that open mind. I love what you were saying about I might be wrong because most people don't start with that because they feel like they have to know everything in every moment. So it's a really good mantra. So we've talked a lot about your book and it's such a beautiful distillation of so many of the lessons that you've learned and your life experiences. Are there any one or two before we close that really stand out for you that you want to share with us? Yeah, I think actually that it's a difficult word in our culture, but I think it's really important to learn something about how to embrace mystery. I was with a teacher once and I was busy in my knowing mind that we were just describing. And she said, Frank, are you willing to let go of your history and step into the mystery? In other words, was I willing to relax a little bit, all of my knowing and be open to what's not known yet? Yeah. So I think having living our life with a sense that reality is a kind of mystery that we discover as opposed to a story we tell ourselves and then throw out in front of ourselves and then try and live into. So it causes me to live my life with more interest. It's more alive, actually. More curiosity. Too. More curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To recognize that there's a sense of mystery. That's the first thing I think. And then, and I think the other is to really live in a way that's courageous. And by this, I don't mean sort of indestructible. I mean, courageousness of heart, you know, mm. that allows us to really embrace the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that are part of this world. I don't think our life is just about getting born and getting a good education and finding the right relationship and getting a good job and living on a nice street, you know, so that we can go to work and come back home, sleep and do it all over again. Mm. I think it's about embracing the fullness of this life. It's beauty and it's horror. It's recognized that there are children like my granddaughter whose mother kisses a bright future into her cheek every single day. Yeah. And there are children like my friend Carolyn whose mother left her in a trash can when she was born. Can we embrace both these things? I think it's to embrace all of it. It's to recognize yeah. that there is unlimited suffering in this world and also there is unlimited compassion. Mm. Need it. Such a beautiful way to live. I am so grateful for all the work that you're doing and just can't recommend your book enough. It's I've pulled out so many nuggets for myself. I just want to thank you for being on our show today and for all of the work that you're doing. You're welcome. And thank you. I appreciate the conversation. And if people go to the website for the book, fiveinvitations.com, they can find articles and videos there that maybe are, would be of some support to them. So there's lots more information people can get. Yeah. It's all for free, so. yeah. Yep. And we'll let people know about all of that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Frank for joining us today. You can find out more about his book and get information on events and courses at fiveinvitations.com. And the book is available at all online booksellers. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at untangle at choosemuse.com. And don't forget to check out the Muse Headband at choosemuse.com and Meditation Studio in the iTunes App Store. We'll see you next week.